Well, today we begin our verse-by-verse study of Romans, uh, having been a pastor at Colonial for seven years now. Uh, I have come right up to the edge or precipice of considering preaching on Romans, uh, but up until this time, I thought I would just kind of fall on my face if we were to uh, look at this study verse-by-verse verse with all of its magnitude and detail. Uh, it's a book that I, I, I really enjoy. Um, it's a book I've studied over the years, again, maybe for the last 30 years or so, and have been working to try to understand it in its full orb capacity. Uh, I've um, prayed about preaching it here before and never really felt that it was time, but I do believe it is what a Colonial Baptist Church needs at this time. Uh, we are in an age or an era where churches are turning to all kinds of different solutions to help people practically in the midst of cultural pressures and struggles. There are uh, inspirational thoughts given uh, or talks. There are light devotionals. There are, you know, whatever the pastor can contrive or create to help people. Um, it's, I think, fairly unusual for a church to say what we really need is we need Romans. We need Romans. Uh, however, I'm convinced, the older I get, uh, that uh, there's more power in Scripture and in God's Word than there would be in the inspirational talk of any human being. Okay, so the older I get, the less I look for frilly solutions, the more I want to uh, be known and to be drawn to God's Word, His eternal Word, which is always relevant. And so I think Romans will do a refining, sanctifying work uh, in our church uh, as we gather together week after week for who knows how long, right? I was originally going to preach Romans 1, 1 through 7 today, but you can see I'm doing 1 through 4. So if we keep at this pace... You know, we might be here for a few years. Uh, hopefully not. I'll try to keep it moving as we go throughout. In uh, his letter to the Romans, Paul encourages believers there to unite with him to help reach others with the gospel of Christ. If you remember last week, we talked about his burden to reach Spain and how he wanted the Roman believers to come together so that they could help him reach Spain with the gospel of Christ. That's found in Romans 15, in case you were interested. And so in Romans, Paul writes the fullest explanation of the gospel found in any of his epistles. In Romans, he writes the fullest explanation of the gospel found in any of his epistles. Regarding this, Martin Luther wrote this. And, you know, you could, you could quote just about any uh, important or significant person throughout ch- church history and what they have to say about Romans and its significance. Uh, I could give you a long list of things. As a matter of fact, you could preach a whole sermon on how Romans has impacted individuals and communities. Um, we won't do that. I'll just read to you the words of Martin Luther in his preface to the book of Romans. Okay, and I've got two screens here. I want you you to, to hear these and think about these to see the significance of Romans. Luther said, this letter is truly the most important piece 
in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word. Okay, so if I preach it for three years, you might have it memorized by that time. (laughs) To memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible, he says, impossible to read or meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. One more thought here. We find in this letter then the richest possible teaching about what a Christian should know. The meaning of Law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace, faith, justice, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, and the cross. We learn how we are to act toward everyone, toward the virtuous and the sinful, toward the strong and the weak, friend and foe, and toward ourselves. These are the words of Martin Luther, whose life was dramatically changed by the righteousness of God found in the book of Romans. So, no doubt, Paul expands on gospel, on the gospel in Romans, expounds on it. Paul's commitment to full expression, I think, can be seen even in the introduction itself. The introduction to Romans is uh, verses 1 through 17. A longer introduction than in most places. You see full expression. You see thoroughness. Uh, the introduction involves three parts. It involves an opening greeting in verses 1 through 7, a thanksgiving for the Romans, verses 8 through 15, and then a thesis, or a thesis statement in verses 16 and 17. It's a thorough introduction. And this morning we'll begin looking at the greeting found in verses 1 through 7. Now, in our modern world, we typically sign uh, a letter. We, we address the letter at the front, and we sign it at the end. Okay. However, in ancient letters, I don't know if you've ever thought about this because of the way the scroll worked, the address uh, for a letter uh, involving both the author and the recipient was found right at the beginning. That way they didn't have to, you know, open up the scroll too far down uh, into this thing. And so as we begin, we'll look at the initial greeting that involves um, both the author and the recipients. Now, uh, I want to do a little comparison here for you, and if you have a handout, got a question there for you. How does the opening of Romans compare to Paul's other letters? Okay, and I, I, I want to do something visually for you. I know you can't see that very well. I'm going to read it to you because there's a lot of script breaking all the rules of PowerPoint uh, today. Uh, however, uh, there is an effect I want you to have by looking at the slide. Uh, I've highlighted in red the author, where he identifies himself, and that's always at the beginning. And then I highlight at the end of each passage when he talks about the recipients in red, in between, of course, are black letters. If you're colorblind today, I'm sorry. I'll try to get better uh, next week uh, and underline something or something for you. 
And so I've got here the opening of a few letters, and I want you to think about that with me. As Paul opens 1 Corinthians, he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth. When he writes 2 Corinthians, he identifies himself at the beginning again, the very first word, Paul, uh, called uh, or Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And at the end, you see the red again. These are the recipients to the church of God that is in Corinth. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi. Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. First Thessalonians, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. And uh, he repeats that exact same form in Second Corinthians. So that's some of Paul's other letters. I'm going to pull that to the side. You can barely see it there. I recognize that. It's just a visual reminder that we did something a little while ago. Okay. Now, what I want to do is I want to read Romans uh, and the intro to you. And I've highlighted the same parts in red, the same parts in black. And we'll read through Romans together, or I will, out loud. Here's the greeting. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including those uh, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Okay, and so uh, what I want to do with this visual in front of you, and we, we've read the opening of some of Paul's letters, and I, I want to ask, how do these greetings compare? How do they compare? And two things stuck out to me. Maybe you, if you're answering that question, how do they compare, you'd pick up the same thing. First, in each one of them, Paul identifies the author very early on, first words, and then closes by greeting the recipients. Okay, so each one of them has red letters at the beginning and red letters at the end, author, recipient. Okay, this is how they're similar. Okay, but something else should stick out to you, hopefully if you're doing a comparison here, and that is um, the words between the author and the recipients are much longer in Romans than in his other letters. In other words, there are a lot more black letters in Romans than in the other ones. Now, how many of you saw that? <laughs> All right. Okay, excellent, excellent. Okay, and so that's how Romans' greeting differs from the rest. Most of Paul's letters have just a few words in the original between the author and recipient, something like five or six Greek words in between Paul to the churches of. Romans, however, inserts 71 words in the original. And that's right, because I counted it yesterday. 
71 words be- between the identification, the author, and the recipient. So, this is where we dig in as a church, and we ask why, right? Why does Paul expand the opening? What are these black words? What are they about? And why are they important for the Romans and for us? And so we start into this opening greeting. Before we do, may we ask God to help us. Let's pray. Father, we are just about ready to dig into Romans 1, 1 through 4 in your holy scripture. I pray that you would open our eyes. We just sang, show us Christ. We just prayed that you would open our ears to receive your word. And I pray that your people here today would be willing and ready to listen and that you would help them perceive this. Lord, if there is someone here today who doesn't know what the gospel is or doesn't know their need of the gospel of Christ to be saved from their sins, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open their hearts as well and would make them see they need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here, Paul's opening greeting to the Romans is organized about what he says about himself and what he says about the Romans. And if you were looking closely, you you would see that Paul actually describes more about himself than about the Romans in the greetings. Okay, That is, most of the greeting is about Paul telling us more about him. I know I only had the word Paul highlighted, but everything in the black that comes after it is actually modifying him. Okay, so he's telling us more about Things. And this is not just my opinion, it's clearly demonstrated by the grammar, and uh, commentators pick this up as well. One said this, he said, Paul adds an unusual amount of material to his self-identification. It's like Paul, and he's got to tell us all the stuff about him. So in verses 1 through 6, Paul uncovers more about himself, specifically his identity, and his message. So if you're taking notes, underneath Paul, number one, there's a letter A and a letter B. Letter A is his identity, and that's what verse one is describing. He starts with his self-identification in verse one. And uh, before we look at that verse closely, let me ask you a question. All right, and I just love this question. I used to love to ask this question as a professor. The question is, who are you? Right, And you get interesting answers if, if people can actually give an answer to that question. Over the years when I've asked that question, I find that most people answer it in one of two ways. They answer it in uh, relationship to the, their relationships. So they'll say something like, uh, after giving their name, I am Brent, I am the father of so-and-so and so-and-so, I'm the husband of so-and-so, I'm the son of so-and-so. Okay, Or if they don't, you know, and, and if you press them to say more than that, where do we go next when we identify ourselves? A lot of times we go to our occupation. Occupation. I work at such and such a place, or I worked at such and such a place, and I did this. And we sure hope they don't keep asking, well, w- tell me further, who are you? 
Okay? For Paul, however, as he's identifying himself, everything revolves around Christ. You see, Paul's life changed dramatically when he met Christ. Everything changed for him so that his whole identity is wrapped in Jesus. I love how John Piper talks about verse 1 in his introduction to Romans, which, by the way, I think he took five or six years uh, to go through the book. Piper says, uh, Paul is not actually answering the question, who am I, in verse 1. He's answering the question, whose am I? Look at verse 1 again. Paul is servant of Christ Jesus. He's called by God to be an apostle. He's separated by God to the gospel of grace. So Paul's identity is all about whose he is, who he belongs to. So as we're looking at verse 1, before we dig into it closely, we need to remember, if we are saved, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, then we are not our own, for we were bought with a price, so we are to glorify God with our body. Does that sound familiar? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so we start by asking Piper's question, Whose are you? Whose are you? I want to brag very briefly on my son Andrew. He's not here, so I'll brag on him. Well, he's not here. Don't tell him I said this. Uh, Last year, uh, my son Andrew was being interviewed by the head coach of a Division I football program. We had met with everyone else and received a tour of the facility and campus of of the university he would attend in the future, but then the coach brought him into his office and asked him a question. Okay, and I I wish I could tell you, I was was with Andrew, and I wish wish I could just describe this. It was a fairly intimidating scene. You know, I often get nervous. I was a little nervous in there. Like, you know, don't embarrass my son. You know, stuff like that. Well, it was an intimidating scene, and then the question came from the coach, and this was the first question he asked. Andrew, How important is football to you? And Andrew said something like this. I wish I would have recorded it or written it down. I'm just going to try to rephrase it for you. Uh, Andrew said, well, coach, football is very important to me, and you can be assured that I will give it everything I have. I will work harder than others. Football is not, however, the most important thing in my life. He said, you see, I'm a Christian, and my life is for Jesus. The coach took a few seconds to answer this. And in that awkward silence we're waiting, he said this to Andrew. He said, you know, you won't be alone on this team. There are more like you here. I guess other young men had demonstrated that their identity was wrapped up in Jesus too. It's our prayer that one day his coach will be able to say the same thing. Now Paul portrays his self-identity with three descriptions in verse 1. Each of these deserves our attention. First, he starts out by giving his name Paul, and then he immediately joins it with a phrase in apposition. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. 
So when you think of Paul, you can either call me, you know, call me Paul or call me a slave of Christ Jesus. The word servant here is, is a common word for servant or slave in the New Testament. And the uh, scholars who look at that, this wonder what Paul's motivation is to lead with this. Okay, and I, I like two different suggestions. I think they're both likely true. Uh, what motivates Paul here is, first, I think he might do this to connect with his Roman audience. Grant Osborne estimates that 85 to 90% of Rome's population were slaves of someone. And so, the, the effect on that sort of person would be to think, hey, the great apostle is just like us. He's a slave. But second, Paul might describe himself here as a servant of Christ Jesus to identify with a tradition in Scripture of the servants of the Lord in the Old Testament. Servants of Yahweh. John Murray says uh, that it was the Old Testament that most informs Paul here, that Paul is joining a long line of servants of God in Scripture. And so if you're reading your Old Testament scripture, you would see Abraham was called servant of God. Moses, David, Isaiah, and many other prophets were identified as servants of Yahweh and thus were also spokespersons for him. So, Paul serves and speaks for Jesus, his master, as the prophets of the Old Testament served and spoke for Yahweh. That's the first, he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Second, uh, with this foundational understanding of his identity in place, he continues by saying he's called to be an apostle. Now the word apostle is a special term in their Greco-Roman culture which would identify an ambassador or an appointed messenger or an authoritative delegate of someone. Now, when the word apostle is used in Scripture, of course, we know that it's used in reference to official delegates of Jesus, right? It's used of special representatives of Jesus who saw him and were sent out by him into this world. Okay, so Paul is uh, called to be an apostle, and he just does not assume this identity on his own. He makes that very clear with the idea of called. He's called to be an apostle. Then pronounce himself to be so. God summoned him to be an official representative of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, for Paul, if you read in Galatians, that happened before Paul was even born. While he was in his mother's womb, God summoned him to do this. Now, at times throughout Paul's writings, he vigorously will defend his apostleship, and there are all kinds of different places you could go to show that. However, with the Romans, he's just establishing it. Okay? He's writing to a group of people he's never met before, never been to their churches in their city, uh, but are clearly under the authority that God has given to him as an apostle. So he declares here at the beginning, part of his identity, he's an called apostle of Jesus. He then continues uh, with his third and final description in verse 1. He's separated to the gospel. Here Paul reveals what his call to apostleship involves. 
he had been separated unto the gospel of God. If you remember before his conversion, he was uh, separated. Same word is used in Acts to describe Paul. He was separated from sinners as a Pharisee. God, however, changed all that. God separated him to something else. God set apart Paul for the special purpose or activity of proclaiming the gospel. This is the one thing that Paul's apostolic calling involved. He was set apart to proclaim the gospel of God. And so it's very interesting. You don't have to read far into Romans until you come across the word gospel. Said at the beginning, this is the fullest explanation of gospel found anywhere in Paul's letters. And so right in verse 1 of chapter 1, you see gospel. At other places... And in other of Paul's writings, we can learn what Paul means by the word gospel, the good news. Um, if you were asking me to define it succinctly from passages like the one Pastor Dan read this morning, I would say that gospel is the message that salvation from the consequences of sin is possible only by believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's like a formal definition that I would give. What is gospel? Gospel is the message that salvation from the consequences of sin is possible only by believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the way, that understanding of gospel is crucial. We expect every member of Colonial Baptist Church to have some sort of understanding of gospel that would be along those lines. It's a message that God can save us through his power. Okay, And the way he saves us is through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, and his resurrection. Okay, So if we would believe that, if we would have faith in that as the only way of salvation we will be delivered from the consequences of our sin. God's wrath, God's punishment, even in a place called hell, eternal hell, forever and ever. But this is something that we must not only believe, it's something we need to clearly articulate. And I hope at Colonial we can do that. Now we'll make much more out of what the gospel is, as we go through Romans in the weeks ahead. However, during this sermon, I want us to consider Paul's exact words in Romans 1.1 and how they would have hit his original readers. And there are two last things I want to emphasize about this verse. First, when the word gospel was used in conjunction with the message of a delegate or an ambassador in a Roman context in the first century, it would connote an official message of worldwide importance. Okay, so I'm suggesting that when a Roman believer would hear the word gospel, or a Roman themselves would hear the word gospel, they would think of that this is a good message that has world-changing implications. Okay, it was used of in the Old Testament often as well of someone coming from afar with good news about an important person or from an important person. Okay, so as an apostle, God has set apart Paul 
to announce a good message on behalf of Jesus that is for the whole world. When the Roman readers read gospel, they will think of a herald bringing glad tidings. Fundamentally, that's the gospel. But secondly, I want you to notice how he describes it in verse 1. He calls it the gospel of God. Gospel of God. And that's a phrase that's not used very often. It's not normally attached to gospel, but it's important for Paul at the beginning. Okay, Paul's message, his glad tidings, this is not something he thought up. I want to find a way to encourage people, motivate Roman people who are enduring persecution. I'll just give them my gospel, a gospel that comes from me, glad tidings from me, a herald, a message from me. That's not what this is. This is a gospel of God. It came from God. Right? This is good news that comes from the God of this universe. That's the gospel. That's Paul's threefold identity as well. Servant of Christ Jesus, called apostle, and set apart to announce God's glad tidings. After this, Paul goes deeper into the message he proclaims, in verses 2 through 6. And so what happens here is that you got that little phrase, gospel of God, you could like circle it. And verses 2 through 6 are all about that. Okay, so he's like telling us, you know, Paul, tell us about yourself. Well, servant of Christ Jesus, called apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now let me like, let me tell you a little bit more about the gospel of God. Okay, so there's a lot for us to learn about God's gospel in verses 2 through 6, and especially verses 2 through 4. In verses 2 through 4, Paul makes two big claims about the gospel. All right, and I think these are pretty clearly seen in your Bible. Look at the beginning of verse 2, which he promised. Okay, so the first big claim is God's gospel was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, and then in verse 3, the very first words there, verse 3, what are they? Concerning His Son. Right? So, God's gospel is about God's Son. Right? These are the two big claims He will make. So, we, we back up to verse 2. The gospel was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul's good, world-changing message is not an afterthought. God had prepared the way for it by testifying to it beforehand in the Old Testament Scriptures. Years before the events of the Gospel would be accomplished, before Jesus ever came, God said His good news of deliverance would come. Look at verse 2 again. Which He promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The word which refers back to Gospel. The Gospel He promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so the good news about Jesus that Paul proclaims in his message that he'll write about in this book is not in any way opposed to the Old Testament Scriptures, as perhaps some Jews might suggest about Paul. He didn't really have a lot of fans, especially among the Jewish people. 
His message didn't contradict that. Instead, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel from God, brings fulfillment and accomplishment to what the prophets of the Old Testament described. I think it would be good for you to stop at this point and just ask yourself, where in the Old Testament then does the scripture, do prophets talk about the gospel? Right? And that's actually probably a harder question than it appears. And think about that. Okay, so you gotta think, where in the Old Testament can you read about the gospel? All right, maybe you have a few. I, I brought a few examples here of maybe good news in the Old Testament from some prophets. All right, and, and, and each one of these passages actually have in their Greek translation the word gospel, good news, it's usually translated, in them. Good news in the Old Testament. And again, you might not be able to read those, but let me read them to you. Nahum 1.15 says, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, the gospel, who publishes peace. Keep your feet, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The prophet Nahum talked about glad tidings coming from God to deliver people. Joel chapter 2 and verse 32, Joel says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This passage also talks about gospel. It talks about God calling people and delivering people. But probably the prophet who has got the most to say about good news in the Old Testament is Isaiah. In Isaiah 40 and verse 9 um, a very important passage in Isaiah's second half. He says, "Go up on, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, O herald, or O Zion, herald of good news, gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God." Isaiah forty. Isaiah is predicting a time when God would come to deliver people from Babylonian exile. And he says it will be a time when Jerusalem and uh, Zion should stand up and herald the good news of God's deliverance for his people. Isaiah 52 and verse 7, perhaps you know these verses, how beautiful, oh, beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. One last one, Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the gospel or good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Okay, while each one of these contexts with Old Testament prophets are all different, they all testify to good news from God's or of God's deliverance being published among his people. Those Isaiah texts in particular, I think, connect the arrival of the good news with the coming of a future servant of God. Okay, and I wouldn't say so much about this, but we talked about this, folks, last year, end of the year, the servant passages of Isaiah that described God's servant. And so the, the prophetic book of Isaiah will be central for us as we interpret Romans. 
Paul cites Isaiah more than any other book when he's writing Romans. Because Isaiah talks about an anointed Messiah who will accomplish God's purposes on the earth. You remember this? He will be pierced by God. He will be crushed by God as the weight of all of our sins meet on him. Remember Isaiah 53? That is, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all so that by his stripes we will be healed. Okay, by his substitutionary death, we will be healed. These are just a few of the examples of Old Testament prophets who announced in their a message of future deliverance, good news from God. So Paul describes in verse 2 the scriptural witness to the gospel. But then in verses 3 and 4, he makes this, uh, I think, an even bigger claim about the gospel. Not only was the gospel prophetically described in the Old Testament years before Jesus, the gospel proclamation about Jesus concerns the very Son of God. So the second big claim that Paul makes about the gospel is that it is about God's Son. More specifically, I think he describes two phases in the Son's existence in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 speaks of the fact that the eternal, pre-existent Son of God was born at a point in time into the line of David according to the flesh. Look at verse 3. Concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Verse 3 testifies to the humanity of the Son of God, connecting him to the Israelite people, and more specifically, to the line of King David. Now what you could do is you could compare what Paul says in this one verse to what the Gospel writers do in Matthew and Luke. The beginning of Matthew's Gospel, uh, the Gospel of writer, connects Jesus to the line of King David. And then in Luke chapter 3, Luke, the gospel writer, also connects Jesus to the son of David. Here what Paul is doing is just a little bit different. He's connecting God's son to the line of David. Later on, we're going to find out the identity of God's son, even today as we just continue through verse 4. So when speaking of the humanity of God's son... One must know he comes out of David's line. That leads to another phase of the son's existence, verse 4. And this phase begins at the resurrection. Look at verse 4. And he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And you might perhaps at this point know why. I stopped at the end of verse 4 and didn't keep going because we could be here forever. Right. This phase in the Son's existence is a bit more difficult to understand and we have to dig into verse 4. Uh, Paul starts by describing a time when the Son of God was declared to be something. Now, the word declared could or should be translated appointed or designated. 
Paul says that God appointed or designated the pre-existent and incarnate Son to be something. That's when we learn what God appointed the Son of God to be. He appointed the Son to be, and this is how I would take the next part, put it all in one statement. So there was a time when God appointed or designated his son to be in a new phase of existence. That new phase is son of God in power. Okay, we're going to talk more as we keep... So there's a time when God decided that his son would reach a more powerful phase. Okay, son of God in power. But there's more to learn. How does the Son of God achieve this new powerful state or position? And that's where the little phrase, according to the spirit of holiness, is helpful. This new powerful position came for God's Son in relationship to or through the Holy Spirit. So take that phrase, spirit of holiness. I think it's an emphatic way to talk about the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who produces holiness. So whatever this new phase of existence is, it came to the Son as he was in relationship with the Holy Spirit. The spirit of holiness, the one who brings holiness. I think what he's describing here Uh, is the way the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus as God's Son in his earthly ministry. And it's true that Jesus functioned in the power of the Holy Spirit throughout his ministry, but I think there's a particular enablement he's thinking of. It's not very clear yet, but if you read the next phrase, it will help bring more clarity. And so next we learn of the basis on which God appoints or designates to be his son to be son of God in power. This new powerful phase came by or on the basis of the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead. You see, a new level of the son's existence came when he defeated death and hell through the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so the resurrection then is the turning point when the apparent weakness of God's Son found in human flesh became Son of God in power. The one who defeats death. You see, death reigned before the resurrection. The Old Testament would testify to the fact death was like a, uh, a throat or a gullet that just kept swallowing everything up in its path. Everyone succumbed, succumbed to death, but 1 Corinthians 15, that was read today, says this, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. So that by the end of the chapter, Paul taunts death. Right? He says, death is swallowed up 
in victory. Taking that Old Testament text and inverting it on death before death's swallowing up everything. Now death has been swallowed down in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Paul taunts, he asks. So it's on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus that God appoints or designates his son to be son of God in power. Perhaps at the moment of his resurrection or just after it had his exaltation, the son achieves this new title. Son of God in power. And then finally, and I know I'm going over just a bit, Paul clearly reveals the true identity of God's son. At the end of the passage, Paul makes it clear that this son who became flesh but then was appointed son of God in power at the resurrection is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that final statement would not be lost on a Roman audience. Right? In, in, in their world, during their time, people would only describe Caesar as Lord. But Paul shows them in the opening that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in power because the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ is the enthroned sovereign ruler over this world. He is the one who now sits next to the Father at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And he is the one whom we gladly worship for what he has accomplished through his death and the resurrection. Men and women, that's the gospel. That's the good news that Paul announces. It's the message that was declared by the prophets before in the Holy Scriptures. And it is the message all about God's Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank Him for this. Father, as we start into Romans, we start into a dense introduction. Perhaps some of my brothers and sisters in Christ here might be thinking, well, this is amazing theology, but how is it relevant for us today? I pray that you would reveal this to them. I pray first, Father, that through your Spirit, you might use Paul's self-identity to convict and challenge us. May we all be able to answer the question, whose are we, very clearly. And not just answer it, but may it affect us as we live our, our, our life day to day. May it affect our young people as they consider their future. They consider, well, how would I answer? Who, who am I? Would they, would they answer, I am servant of my master, Christ Jesus. And that affects everything. My life's pursuit. My goals. My time. My calling. 
pray that we would, through your Spirit, examine our own hearts and ask whether we live day by day with the awareness that we, like Paul, are servants of yours. Brent, servant of Jesus Christ. May we then also be encouraged that the same Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness that raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit that indwells us as believers producing holiness in our lives. Paul will get there in Romans. We haven't yet. But I pray, Lord, that that today as we leave, our hearts would be just full, brimming with confidence in your Holy Spirit who raised your Son from the dead so that He was then appointed Son of God in power. Lord, help us to believe today that our Son of God in power, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is reigning and ruling at the right hand of the majesty of God in heaven. Lord, I pray that those theological truths would have practical merit and value for a brother or sister here who's struggling with discouragement. Maybe one who's having a difficult time getting their focus off of self and all of their weaknesses and shortcomings, sins and failures and iniquities, has grown so discouraged, maybe in in these sins that are clinging to them. I pray, Lord, that in this moment they would just see the Son, Son of God in power, exalted, who's defeated death and sin, their, their sin. God, would you just take their focus off of self and their discouragement and encourage them by putting it on Jesus. And finally, I pray for those here today who have never believed on the gospel that comes from you. Or there are some here today who who heard me uh, labor through every word, every phrase, and yet they still have not believed in the name of Jesus to be saved from their sins. I pray that you would open their eyes now, break up the hard and stony ground. You would give them faith to believe this message and be saved from their sins. Pray that as we close in song, quietly, they would believe in their heart that you sent your son to die on the cross, that he was raised by the Holy Spirit so that they could be saved from their sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.